Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 51 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. All of us who have had a child die without us being right there with him, remember the moment. The moment when someone tells you that your child has not survived. For me, it took place in the back of an ambulance when a paramedic sat my husband and I down and said, Despite our best efforts, we were unable to save your son. That moment happened with today's guest, Barb, as well. Barb's son, Chris, also died tragically in a single-car automobile accident. Barb was told the news of her son's death while sitting in her husband's office by two victim advocates and officers from the sheriff's department. For me, and for likely the majority of parents, that moment is one that we would not like to relive, and in some ways would like to forget. For Barb, though, it was different. She felt almost called to be the one to be there, standing beside the parents, telling them that their beloved child has died, to be the one telling a husband or a wife that their spouse is gone. It really takes a very special person to be willing to sit beside someone who is going through tragedy and their most horrible moments. I think it is especially impressive that Barb is able to do this after having lived through it herself. She says that she feels that it is something that she can do with her son, Chris. When she is on her way to talk to a family, she talks to Chris, saying, help me through this. In this way for her, it's not reliving that horrible moment when she learned Chris had died. It's again trying to make someone's moment a little less horrible, sitting beside them, helping them just a little bit. Thank you so much, Barb, for agreeing to be on the show today and tell your story. Well, it's good to be talking to you. All right. Well, why don't you start out today by just telling us about your son, Chris? Okay. Chris, um, as a young child, was just a happy little little guy, when he got excited, he would actually, his body would just shake because (laughs) he was just so excited. And uh, we have some videos of that. And and we, uh, we just love to watch them because he literally shook. Chris loved trains. And as he got a little bit older, and if he received birthday money or allowance or 
anything like that. He would save that money and then he would go buy train cars, train tracks, little trees, little houses, and uh, to, to set up a train track, which he did with our first home. We had a big table and we let him set that up. But oh, fun. kind of a funny story was when we moved to our next house, we had a, uh, this is the kind of child he was, he was determined. We had a a storage room downstairs and he was excited with that storage room because he thought he could have the whole storage room for his train and <laughs> set up a big train and when we explained to him that we would give him part of the storage room but he couldn't have it all because we needed it he was upset and he said okay well then i'm not setting up my train so oh, no. right so he didn't set it up he was a determined little guy and so, um, you know, we had to hold our, to our guns because we needed that storage space. So we all kind of laughed about it later. So he never set up the train? No, he never did. Oh, my goodness. No, he never did because he wanted a whole room when he was going to do his train. He wanted to hit a whole room. But he continued even after that with any money he got buying more train things and more train things. So... Did he put some of those up in his room at least or something? He he would take them out and put them on shelves. Oh, I know, see. So that he could look at them. But, uh, you know, he never set up the big train that he <laughs> wanted to do. But that was his choice. So we said, that's your choice. But anyway, he, he was a, a fun little guy and really a happy little guy. And he was small for stature, you know, and he was kind of shy and quiet when he was around people. Unfortunately, we had to move more frequently than probably some other families did due to his dad's education and uh, my work. And some children really thrive on that, you know, the change and meeting new people. And I don't think Chris was one of them. So he, uh, he was quite, quite shy. And we had another son over seven years later. Oh, so as yes, so there was quite a difference between the two, two boys. And when they were younger, Chris would play with his brother and do things together. But then once he got in high school, our youngest son was still in elementary so they had different interests and so they kind of then you know pulled apart as far as doing things together or hanging around or anything like that so as Chris got older in high school he was on the high school swim team Mm -hmm. and we are really proud of him for that because he was quiet and then when he turned 16 we took a a trip for his 16th birthday he wanted to like go to Jamaica and he learned how to scuba dive and I'm telling you that just was his true love after that he had hoped and we had hoped actually that later down the road he could turn that um, skill because he was really good at it into more of a profession but that wasn't to be. He had made comment one time that he wished he could live underwater all the time because it was really? so peaceful. Because it was so peaceful. Yep. Mm-hmm. He just loved it under there, huh? He did. He did. And then once he reached college, he joined a fraternity. And after a little while, he started making some unfavorable choices, alcohol related. Mm-hmm. So, Those years after that were tough years. We had a lot of ups and downs, and that unfortunately lasted 
you know, throughout his 20s and until his death at mm-hmm. age 30. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that must have been difficult for you to watch him like that. Yes, it, it was. It really just broke my husband's and my heart to watch him make some of the choices he did. But we always felt he knew that we loved him no matter what. And we always kept our door open and communication. If, if, you know, he wanted to talk or if there was some way we could help him, that was a healthy way of helping. Sure. So in his mid twenties into his late twenties, things got much better. And he and I had some of our best years together. Oh, that's nice. So we, we, I, I really think about that. A lot. So, yeah. What did he do for work? He worked at uh, various factories and assembly lines, and then he would go scuba diving when he could. Ah, Mm -hmm. very cool. Mm -hmm. So then let's talk a little bit about what happened with Chris. As I mentioned, he was 30 years old and he went out one evening from our, well, our understanding, he was in a fatal car accident. Mm -hmm. They came and, you know, told us about that. Yeah. How did you find out about that? Because I I think that's really important to your story with what you ended up doing later. So let's talk about how you learned about his death and and what happened okay it was a it was still in kent county but it was right on the border of kent county uh south of kent county and chris was staying with his uh girlfriend at the time and so they went to her house and tried to find out we're next of kin uh, mother and father so they got our information and then came to our home with the officers, the Kent County Sheriff, and then also two uh, victim service unit people. And I was not home. And so they ended up finding out my husband where he was at work. So he, they went to my husband's work. And then my husband called me to come down to his work. And then that's when we were told. So they just told him that something had happened and to get you there? Correct. And they didn't tell him what it was until you were both together? Correct. But my husband, because of his background and whatnot, he looked at the officer and the victim service uh, advocates and just said, it isn't good, is it? And then they told him. And so when I walked in the door, I just saw all these people but I didn't know exactly what had happened. And then my husband told me. Mm-hmm. And so. th- those are just the worst moments of your life, aren't they? Yes. At first, I couldn't believe it. I wanted to go see him. I said, I need to see him. And I was told that I, I it was best for me not to see him mm-hmm. and that I could see him later on and that it was not good for me to to have my last visual of him as after the accident yeah it's hard though as a mom I feel like you know I didn't get to hold my son again or see him close up again 
and it's it's something I wish I could have. I know it was not for the best, and everyone says don't, but it's hard not to, right? It's hard not to want to hold them. It, it is. I, I just wanted to even touch his hand or make some physical c- connection there, but they told me that I would not be able to do that. Mm-hmm. How long after the accident was it when you found out? Probably about, probably about five hours, actually. Okay. okay. By the time they located us and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Were there other people injured in the accident? No, it was a single car. Okay. Accident. Well, yeah. In some ways, that ends up being a little bit better, I imagine, that you didn't have that other problem too the other exactly and i i was very grateful for that that no one else was involved Mm -hmm. because that does make it more challenging i think it does it does so why don't we go on and talk about your thoughts afterwards kind of the your early healing process just some of those things sure so as i mentioned when i was first told um that chris had died i couldn't believe it. And I would um, cry a lot. And then I would stop crying and think, no, you've got to take, you know, (laughs) you've got to get under control here. You've got to think. But it was really hard for me to think. Those first days, weeks, I felt I was almost like in a fog or Mm -hmm. like in a bubble. I was there, but I wasn't really there. And so I wasn't sleeping very well. And my mind was like whirling with all kinds of uh, different thoughts. I, as the weeks went on, I had some, I had some guilt thinking maybe I should have handled things different earlier on. Maybe I should have talked to him more. But as the years went on, I really got to, to feel and learn that I did the best that I knew how to do at the time. Right, right. And I think that that was comforting for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I yeah. think there's no question. That is so huge when you come to that point of acceptance. I know right. I've had other moms reach out because they are struggling with the guilt because their children have made poor choices that Mm -hmm. ultimately resulted in their deaths and they just feel this guilt so you felt that as well yes i i think that that's not an uncommon feeling Mm -hmm. in not only a fatal car accident or it is definitely in in like a suicide or you know did I miss this did I miss that Mm -hmm. but what people have to remember is that you do the best you can at the time that you know how to do and I do think that once you really start believing that and knowing that it does take that edge off the guilt Mm -hmm. well good how long has it been now since Chris died? It's been uh, 14 years. Mm-hmm. And in those, even that first weeks, years, it was interesting how people didn't want to 
bring up Chris's name in front of me, or they wouldn't want to mention Chris's name at all because they thought that they were going to make me feel bad or feel worse. Mm -hmm. And I explained to them that I think of Chris every day. And so what I would purposely do, because I knew people were having trouble with that. So I would purposely bring up Chris's name. Mm-hmm. and let to let them know that it was okay to talk about him. And I, I had read in this, um, and I've always remembered it. I don't remember where I read it, but there was a poem that a father had written, and maybe some of the listeners have read that poem before. But the part that I remember is the father said, my son's name is music to my ears, so please don't turn off the music. Oh, I love that, Barb. That's so beautiful. Yes. I I read that early on after Chris died, and I've never forgotten it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. I will never forget it either. I was just looking online today, and someone had posted, you talk about your kids every day. Please don't be uncomfortable when I talk about mine. Mm -hmm. And that is so important, too. I still want to talk about Andy. I could talk about my other two kids too, but please don't make me not talk about Andy because it is important to me and it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. It just makes me feel strange if now I only talk about two children instead of three. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. love that. Mm-hmm. And people have asked me that have lost children. They say, well, what do you say when people ask you how many children do you have? Mm-hmm. And I tell them, you tell them, if you have three children, you have three children. It doesn't matter if they're on earth or if they're in heaven. They are your children. They will always be your children. Mm -hmm. So you tell them that, like for myself, when people ask me, I say, I have two sons and, and drop it there. If they ask further questions, then I'll explain. But other than that, I don't say anything Mm -hmm. more. Yeah, that's what I do too. And then they'll then if they ask me their ages, then you have to kind of go go on. But yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. You just can't forget about them and not mention them. So. No, 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 no. So why don't you tell the listeners about your healing process and what you do now and kind of okay. what led you to that point? Sure. Well, first of all, as the years went on, I would look back, reflect back. And when Chris died, I, I kind of compared it to like a major surgery. When you have a major surgery, there is a part removed from you. And so we've had a part as parents removed from us. And as the years go on, there you will always have that scar. It will always be there. Now, as the years go on, it decreases in, in intensity, but the scar will always be there. And sometimes the scar will really be like fire hot or something. Let's say you've seen, you've been outside and, and you see somebody who, who looks like your child or you're, it's a memorial time or a, or a holiday time. That scar, that wound actually kind of fires up, but it doesn't stay intense like that as the years go on. And memories help 
with that intensity and that feeling. But the scar uh, of losing a child or losing a loved one is always there. Mm -hmm. So you always have that scar. So as the years went on, or actually after the first year, I am a believer. And so I, I was praying to God quite often and asking God, what can I do with this? There's got to be something that I can do with this, this hole in my heart. And as I mentioned earlier, when uh, we were told about Chris's death, I mentioned the Kent County Victim Service advocates that were there. There were two of those people there. And that program kept coming up on my mind. And it was like God telling me, you can do that. And I would say, no, 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 no. I try to push that out of my head. I push mm -hmm. that out of my head and say, no, no, I don't mean that. And then the idea would come back and it kept coming back. So I thought, okay, well, I better check into that. So after about a year and a half since Chris's death, I did go meet with the people at the Kent County Sheriff Department. And I interviewed for the Victim Service Unit. And the Victim Service Unit is a group of volunteers who want to help families when the family has experienced a sudden unexpected death. It's kind of compared to like one of my teammates calls it like grief triage. We are initially there when the death occurs with the family and we can be there any anywhere from one to four hours, whatever the family needs. And we are the advocates for the family. We're like the people in between the officers and the family. We advocate for the family. One of our main, main concerns or what we try to do is to get support in for the family. And then we do whatever needs to be done those first initial hours, whatever the family needs. I've taken care of small children before. Mm -hmm. And as I was explaining all this, I did join the, the uh, team. I've been working with a victim's advocates now for 13 years. And we're not professional counselors. We're just compassionate and caring people who want to help others at their most vulnerable time. Mm -hmm. So tell me about what one of your visits might be like or what happens exactly. Okay. Depending on what kind of death it is, if it is a fatal car accident or a death that occurs away from the immediate family mm -hmm. members. We are called by the Kent County's dispatch. The officers uh, call us out. And then we meet with the officer at a designated location. And then we go and do notification to the family okay. of their loved one. And then we stay with that family, like I said, as long as our fam the family needs us. Now, it, a lot of times the death has been f found by the family or friends. Sure. So then we, the, the officers are already there. And so then we are called out to meet at that particular home. And then again, we're there to help the family. We help them make decisions because people's heads 
as people know, are just swimming. It, it's kind of, they look at us and go, we don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So we're there to try to help them through those steps uh, to, like I said, get support in, help them uh, with choosing a funeral home. We talk to them about why a medical examiner might be involved or not be involved. We're the go-between between the officer and the family. So if the family has questions, we can then go to the officers. Yeah, let's say there was one family member who had lost her husband and it happened in the bedroom but of course we were in a whole nother room but she needed to get into that bedroom to get some things that she wanted so then we go to the officer and we'll go in and get anything that that she needs Mm -hmm. you know for her yeah I just think back to the night of our accident and really how helpful those things would be because your head is swimming and I just felt like I couldn't make any decisions at all. Right. We didn't have, no one came for us. I think we were in the accident at the same time and then all went to the hospital. So I suppose you, they don't have people come out to the hospital. I don't know. No, we don't normally go to the hospitals because the hospitals usually have support count, you know, um, social workers and, and people to help them. Our role more is to be there to come alongside of the family in, in their own home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh We've, we've called friends. We've been crowd control before people hear through media of, of something that has happened, a tragedy that's happened. And so, especially if it's a teenager that has died, mm-hmm. friends are just coming. And, and so we can then be the go-between to say, so-and-so is here. We go to the family and say, do you want to see them? Or we talk to the people who came to the door and say, this is not a good time. The family will talk to you later. Mm-hmm. So we're yeah, doing I whatever's really, needed. I do understand that for sure, because we were on every news station in Grand Rapids. It was this huge story. And, and that was difficult. I, I have a friend who was a member of the media, and she had said to us, you need to find a spokesman, spokesperson for the family so you don't have to do it yourself, because it is just so challenging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The it's one thing that we had that is definitely different than what you do, but still I think equally important, is we did have a victim's advocate through the court system. There are different victim mm-hmm. advocates. Because mm-hmm. that was helpful too, because when you're involved in something that goes through the legal system, which ours did and took you know, over a year, well over a year, to get through the legal process, it is nice to have someone there walking with you through that. It is nice to have someone that's looking out to make sure you don't come across, walk up in the hallway at the same time that the person is who who was the cause of the accident or cases of homicide, things like that, just to be able to watch out for you. She would tell us when the media was going to be there. She would stand between us and the camera. She did a very, very good job of trying to protect us as much as she could in that way, too. So... Mm-hmm. Anyway, I really, really appreciate what the victims advocates can do on all fronts. So mm-hmm. I think you do that emergency stuff and then other teams must take over. 
Correct. One of the things that we do when after we have met the family's needs the best way that we can, we always leave them with a packet of information with resources, numbers to call. They have questions about what took place, if it was a car accident or if it was a suicide or a drowning or anything on that order. We give them numbers to call to get a hold of the various people they might need. We give them uh, grief support flyers for grief support down the road. We give them our number uh, as advocates to call if they have further needs. Now we are only triage, so we're not professional counselors or anything. Mm -hmm. So we don't go back out to the house two weeks later or anything like that to meet with the family, but we give resources for that next step. Mm -hmm. So how was it for you when you started out, for example? How was that? Did that bring back a lot of memories for you? Was that difficult? Was it rewarding? Was it kind of both? I would have to say both. And it, it still is. My first call out, and that's why I say that God is all over it for me, mm -hmm. is that my first call out was with a 34-year-old who had died, but it was a industrial accident. But we had to go notify the wife, and then also his parents. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of the same age. It was, you know, it, it was a tragedy. And so we had to talk to the parents. And when I was talking to the father, I said, is there anything, can I get you some water? Is there anything I could do for you? And he just looked at me and he said, I want my son back. And right then I thought, I could sit down and right next to you and, and cry right along with you. But mm -hmm. I thought, you know what? This is not about you, Barb. This is about who you're taking care of. And so sometimes when I get in that, where my heart is kind of breaking because I can feel what they're feeling, mm -hmm. I'm there to serve them. And so it is a healing for me in that I feel that... I can understand somewhat how they're feeling mm -hmm. and that I am helping them. Now, I also know that grief is different for everybody. Mm -hmm. So my grief is not the same as somebody else's grief. And so there is no right or wrong about how a person grieves. Sure. So I was able to go into that role a year and a half after my son died, where there are other people who said, even five years down the road, I could never do that. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, it was more of a God's idea for me. It wasn't my idea. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how I feel. Now, with a victim service too, I want to tell you, we do training they do training you net you are always in a team of two you never go out alone they do a 20-hour training we have monthly meetings periodic training so we are well educated and if we do have a, a tough call out we sit in the car and talk to our teammate about what we did or how could we have done it better and that's what we do at our debriefing meetings too mm -hmm. or we can call any of our teammates and because they know what we're talking about, because everything is confidential, mm -hmm. you know, what we do. So, yeah, I mentioned this to you earlier, 
Gwen, who is a frequent guest of the show on every few weeks and sharing her expertise on grief, she has done trainings for you. And it's interesting because I told her last week that you were going to be on this week and she knew exactly who you were. I don't think she knows you by name, really, but she remembered doing some education and her looking through the whole group and meeting your eyes and thinking to herself, this means something different for her. This isn't just like everyone else. She's lived this. And she talked to you after that meeting and confirmed, obviously, that you had gone through the loss of your son. But it was very interesting to me that she still remembers that quite vividly and would be able to recognize you without any mm-hmm. <laughs> without any doubt uh, just because of that. So mm-hmm. it does give you a little bit of a special gift, I would say, to be able to share with others. Yes. Do you ever tell people that you had been in their shoes? That's a good question. No, I, I really do not. Um, because it is like I told you, it's not about me. It's not about my story. And I'm there to help the people. Now, it's been uh, just in 13 years, just a handful, um, not even a handful of times that I have told somebody that I lost a son, when they would say, how did you get into this? Mm-hmm. Or why are you doing this? And then I will mention that I was a recipient of, of uh, the victim service advocates and that I had uh, lost a son. Now, there was one point at one of the ones that call outs that we went to. And this mother was had her young son, I think he was 19 or 20, had died. And she was angry. She was so angry. Mm-hmm. And she was looking at us we were trying to help her and she looked at me and said i don't know why you're even telling us any of these things you don't understand what i'm going through Mm -hmm. and at that point i said to her but i do understand i also lost a son and right away it her demeanor was all different yeah I was wondering that because I thought, I bet if you would tell parents, I I have been there, I, I would think that would actually be a comfort to them and not, and I know you don't want to make it about you, but I think it would be comforting because I know when I talk to other people who are further along this journey than me and I see them still up and walking and doing things, it gives you a little bit of hope. Like, mm-hmm. Wow. Look at her. Look at her be able to do this. Maybe I can too. It's just that little glimmer that, so I think in that case, that was perfect to be able to say, but I do understand. Mm -hmm. I do understand. I don't, I'm obviously, like you said, everyone's grief is different and it's not the exact same, but so much of it is the same when you have lost a child. There are, I've spoken to so many people. I've spoken to people who've, lost their children there when they're 50. I've spoken to women who have lost their newborn newborns and there are commonalities among all of us. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, once a mother always a mother. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or so, parent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that would be a comfort. Mm-hmm. 
I am a little more careful about that because when the victim advocates came to our house, well, actually we were at where my husband worked and they sure. had, they drove one of our cars. That's another thing they did. They drove one of our cars home so that I could ride with my husband back mm-hmm. home. But once we were at our house, I remember an advocate telling me, I know how you feel. Mm-hmm. My brother died because of such and such. And I remember in my head thinking, but yeah. I, I don't know your brother. You know, right, right, I don't right. know about your brother. I'm, I'm, I, my son just died. Mm-hmm. So I'm very aware of that. And that's right. why I don't do that either. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing that I'm careful of is giving people their distance when I go with their personal space. Mm -hmm. With COVID, you have to, but I never hug anybody unless I've asked them their permission. Mm -hmm. Because when you're vulnerable like that, your mind is just swirling. And so I try to be real respectful of the person that I'm trying to help. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's hard. I think even with my own mother-in-law, my mother-in-law's a hugger. She likes to hug just greetings and saying goodbye and whatever. And I have a terrible time with that now after Andy's death. A hug means something totally different to me now. If I'm weeping, I want you to hug me. If it's, hi, I am, or bye, see you later, I can't even do a hug with that anymore because it's it's too personal and intimate and it means something emotional to me and it can't be just done lightly so that's very very individual so I can see why you would want to ask for that because you don't know people's backgrounds you don't know what they feel comfortable with right I people came to my door and brought food that who I did not know they knew my husband and they wanted to hug me and I felt extremely uncomfortable. Like, I don't know you at all. I really don't want you touching me. <laughs> so that's that's a very nice, sensitive way to be, I think. Mm-hmm. 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 I totally understand that. Right. Because they obviously don't know you, but you have to give them this horrible news. I think back even to some experiences in pediatrics you don't want to see that person that gave you the horrible news I know I had one that had another injury I walked with them through this and they were very very thankful and they sent me a very nice card at the end but they said no offense to you but I really don't want to see you again because it brings back such bad memories of what had happened so that's Mm -hmm. why in some ways It can be good that it's someone more anonymous to have Mm -hmm. to give this horrible news that you will then not have to see again. Mm -hmm. I've I've had it both ways, actually. I've seen people whose houses I have been out to as a victim advocate, and I've seen them in a, a grocery store or outside somewhere. And I don't go over to them, but I've seen some of them kind of half- see me and turn around Mm -hmm. and rightfully so and I've had other people come up to me and say oh my gosh you were at our house on such and such a when my husband died or something and I can't thank you enough so Mm -hmm. you do you you never know Um, again people were all different and how we handle things are not the same as everybody else Yeah. And I would think you must see a variety of reactions in those moments too. I do. Most of the reaction is shock 
and, mm-hmm. and, and tears. We give them space. And sometimes the best thing we can do for them is just to sit there and say, we're here, but we don't have to fill that space with, you know, talk. Yes. And that is so key too. I have listeners that have lost their children. I also have people that listen who just want to help others, friends, family members who have lost their children. And that is an important key that I think you can help teach is to be comfortable in silence. Mm -hmm. You do not Mm -hmm. have to talk. You do not have to say anything. And you absolutely 100% are not going to make anything better. So please don't even try, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I am certain that in your training, they never have you say something silly like looking on the bright side or getting some sort of silver lining to this tragedy. You just need to sit there with them in the awfulness of what has happened. Right, right. And that's what we tell them. We tell them we are here for them. We are, you know, we want to be here and we don't need to talk. Mm -hmm. No, but no, we're here. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to not try to cheer anybody up or make anything better. No, because you can't. It's, it's sometimes we have, uh, my partner and I have, we've waited for the, we've been at a home and waited for the funeral home to come in and, and pick up um, the person. And we just let the family kind of do what they do. And we just stand, we don't leave until the funeral home has come. Um, and we just say, we're going to be back over in that corner. And if you need us, you let us know, but we'll just be here for you if you need us. And sometimes that's all people need. And we have gone, it's not frequent, but there are times that families don't want us there. Mm-hmm. And we can always tell by the reaction and whatnot. And well, we, we don't need you here or whatever. We're not there to get in people's way. So we give them a folder with all the resources and, and things personal to them. And then we just tell them to call us if, they, if we can help in any way. Mm-hmm. And then we leave. Well, and I can see that too, because when you are there, you make it real. And sometimes you just don't want it to be real yet. You want to almost pretend like things are okay and it's not really happening to you and with you being there it's real and it's happening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're, we're obviously important right right and you're mm-hmm. strangers mm-hmm. so I know one of my very first calls was to our pastors who were there immediately so that obviously is much more of a comfort to me than it would have been had we had a victim's advocate whom I did not know, you know, someone who knew me and knew my family and knew us very, very well. So, of course, and we don't take offense at that. That's another thing that we do. We always ask, is there, you know, is there a minister, a priest? Is there a church we can call for you? Yeah. Do you make calls for families? Yes, we do. I think that's the one of the very hardest things I had to do that night was the number of people that I had to call to tell this to. And that would have been something that would be nice to not be on your plate. Right. Actually. We take off as much as we can off of their plates. We call as many people. Sometimes we'll be calling a school if it's a young child or a young person that's died. We've called and talked to the principal of that school so that they know it can start 
what they need to do, you know, with their counselors. And we call jobs uh, mm-hmm. for family members that, you know, aren't going to be going to that job uh, because they're going to be with their family or they are the deceased. But we always ask the family, yes, we'll call the school or we'll call this job, but what would you like us to tell them? Mm-hmm. So we always ask the family what they want us to say. Mm-hmm. So because that's hard when those calls end up coming in and getting you out of the blue. I mean, I know ban- Andy was going to play in a band. He's playing the French horn at St. Cecilia's band. And to have them call about why he wasn't at the rehearsal, because I didn't even think about it, is horrible to have to say, oh, well, he died. That's so, so horrible to have to say that when you get caught off guard like that and that happens to everyone I think to all of us there are you because you just don't remember everything and you don't remember who to talk to I know that night I called as many people as I possibly could because I just wanted to get it out of the way mm-hmm. and I didn't want those questions to come like oh how is the kids school year starting well you know they're not right Right. We we usually um, suggest that they make a list. And as they call people, write the names down because mm-hmm. your mind is thinking all different things. And you say, oh, did I call so-and-so? Did I call so-and-so? And if we can get that off their uh, their plate, we do. Now, we don't call a whole address book right, <laughs> people, right. but key people. And then, you know, kind of like a tree, we, you know, we suggest that that person calls, you know, the other people. Yeah. And so. I think that's what... It, we I ended up doing too you know I called my brother and he had to call other people in my family and it's a horrible time I it's almost gets foggy right you don't even remember everything that happened but to know that someone can be there to help you walk through this horrific time is really nice and I think for it to be you someone who experienced it and lived it even if you don't make that known to people it's still it's got to come across in how you do things, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it has mm-hmm. to because you do understand what it's like and you do know that horrific feeling and you know how you just never, never think things will be okay again. Right, right. But, and that's one thing I guess I want to say as a mother, a parent of a child, you know, 14 years ago that, that died. There is hope. Life goes on. And that is not saying that you you should ever forget your child, which you wouldn't. And I still think of Chris every day. I, in some way, and of mm-hmm. course, we have pictures around the house and everything. I talk to him, especially when I'm on my way to, um, I always pray on my way to a call out. But I also talk to Chris too and say, okay, Chris, you know, here I go again. I'm, I'm doing this because of what happened to you. And so I really feel that people can make it through. And some people have harder times than others. And that's why there's resources there mm-hmm. to try to help them walk through. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was wondering that and almost hesitant to ask you if it felt like it was something you were doing with Chris. Uh, yes, Yeah, I do. I do. And in fact, I always take, I didn't last year because we were out of town, but I always take the week of when he died. I always put myself on call in remembrance of him. Oh, do you? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. I just feel like with Andy, 
I when I'm doing this podcast, I feel like it's him and I doing it together. When I get to share stories of other families, I feel like we're sharing that story together. So I had wondered if that's how you felt, if you felt like every time you went on on a call, it was you and Chris doing it together. Yes. Yes. I always say, watch my back. <laughs> Make sure so, I don't do anything stupid. Huh? <laughs> exactly. Keep my mouth shut when it should be shut. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's just beautiful. I'm so glad that you were willing to share this with us. I I think it will be an enormous help to people just to kind of understand what can be out there and how to get through those first little bits of time and how it's good to ask for help. It's good to get help. Exactly. We all need help and support through yes, tough times. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do. Well, thank you for helping and supporting people. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.